So by now, most of our listeners and subscribers have uh, have learned or already know that Pope Benedict has passed away. Um, in fact, um, his funeral will be held in a few hours from now as we're recording this. Um, but we, as the Catholic Brothers, wanted to offer um, our own reflections and perspectives um, on this great Pope, uh, not just his um, his legacy as, as the successor to St. Peter, but even before that, his overall legacy, his life's legacy um, that's been, been left to us. The ironic thing is that um, we kind of missed his whole public ministry, didn't we, Steve? Yeah, we did. <laughs> so <indeed>. so um, <laughs> your your storyline's a little different than mine, but for me, um, as um, Benedict was elected in 2005, I was actually leaving the church. So he was coming in and I was going. <laughs> yeah. Um, at least at least in my heart, I was still attending Catholic churches, but I, in my heart, I was already gone. I wasn't. I didn't consider myself Catholic and. And um, and I didn't start to rediscover um, Benedict through his writings uh, until after he abdicated. Actually, yeah, you know, I was thinking of timelines uh, when he when he passed away, and it was 2005 when I was leaving the church, um, and then it was 2013-14 when I kind of discovered him um, through his writings as an Anglican, and appreciated it then. Uh, but mm-hmm. so, so the whole public ministry um, was was missed, was lost on me. Yeah, it was funny even because though, when when we started as evangelicals, it was very like um, you know typical evangelical where everything you know sort of parsed out and disintegrated. So it's like you know beauty is kind of separate a separate thing from truth and these kinds of things. So it was like anytime you saw like a Catholic church that was beautiful, it was like a threat in other words, because it was like, well, why doesn't that money go to the poor? You know? Um, well, see, you... and that's, and that's, that's kind of the, that was, that's why it was so easy. I think for me at the time to rely on the media, Yeah, uh, you know, the, the media, as I was leaving the church, I was already hating the church and the media was, was propping him up as he's the Rottweiler and a rigorist and yeah. uh, a ritualist, uh, only concerned with the aesthetics of the religion, the ritual of the religion, uh, a dogmatic, um, um, kind of personality, the German shepherd or the Rottweiler they were calling him. Yeah, so it was yeah. easy to fall into that, to look at the red Prada shoes and say, oh yeah, this guy's, this guy's a joke and I don't need to pay attention to him. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And, and then as we, um, as we continued that, that journey, um, it's weird because as we were moving through the fathers of the church in a way without even knowing it. And as we were moving closer and closer to Anglicanism, we were moving closer and closer to Pope Benedict, in a way, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. As we and, and especially as we engage in in Reformation thought um, with Luther and and Anglicanism, um, because you know those are the those are the two things that Benedict spent a lot of time engaging with. So, yeah, it made sense yeah. that as you're kind of climbing the Protestant ladder, you're also coming closer and closer to the conversation that Benedict is. Or, yeah, Benedict's conversation with Protestantism. On you know, yeah. I mean, it's funny you brought that up because. Um, my first taste of of Pope Benedict's writings um, was really the spirit of the liturgy, mm. and the only reason I picked that book up was because I was a bit concerned with how my my local Anglican church was conducting themselves in worship, mm. and I was I was trying I was grabbing all kinds of different things, um, liturgical writers and theologians, to try and ground myself in a theology of liturgy and uh, Pope Benedict's spirit of the liturgy certainly was that. And it, yeah. it kind of brought this context 
to um, to the worship of God that that I wasn't formed with growing up, and that I didn't have when I left the church. Yeah, yeah, and it, it like I said, it's it's you had to put all the pieces together because you had so much disintegration. So you had to reintegrate everything. You know, it had to be, you know, like I said, beauty with truth, but it it also has to be like worship with priesthood or like pastorship and priesthood and all these different things have to come back together. And as you're putting those parts together and you're realizing that like, well, wait a second, these earliest Christian thinkers and writers and presbyters were priests and they saw themselves as priests, and they acted as priests, and the liturgical gathering was a priestly gathering. It was a, a gathering of sacrifice and altar and all these things. When you're putting all of that together as an Anglican, you're also moving up the Anglican ladder and becoming more of an Anglo-Catholic. And so then once we were there at that point, you're sort of looking back down the Anglican ladder, and you're seeing a lot of Puritanism and Calvinism and because the Anglican tent is pretty broad for those who haven't you know spent much time there. So it was like... You needed help. <laughs> you needed mm-hmm. uh, you needed a friendly voice, uh, and Benedict actually, of all people, came in as that friendly voice as somebody who really um, <clears throat> provided a, a grounding for liturgical worship in the priesthood itself, in the Christian priesthood, and so that kind of became you know form- formational. Yeah, no, absolutely, and 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 that's the thing, and so you know going into his writings for the first time you had in the backdrop the uh, the perception of him mm-hmm. and that's what i was surprised at most is the tone that he took the humility that was there the moderation that was there his balanced approach to scholarship all those things were there but it also gave a context to what previously i had scorned his 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 um, aesthetic bent in in ritual in the worship of god in his choice of vestments, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and the context was, he's been fighting this fight for decades. Right. Um, uh, and because there, there's this spirit of the age that was that was trying to um, move him uh, and, and move the liturgy in directions that it it shouldn't have been going. Mm-hmm. And and Benedict was that voice of, of stability in the midst of this, um, storm, yeah. um, and so you can you now you have a, a context for why he's choosing to worship this way, uh, why he's choosing to wear those certain vestments, even down to those things. Um, he is trying to combat a a spirit that is trying to rid the church of a thousand years of wisdom when yeah. it comes to how we approach the divine. I think I think Benedict for especially for young American Catholics and Christians in general. It's it's very interesting to see on social media. Like I have a lot of friends who are not Catholic, you know, friends who are just broadly Protestant, uh, either Lutheran, Anglican, whatever. Um, they all admire Benedict, all of mm-hmm. them. Even the Orthodox admire Benedict. They liked him. <laughs> so mm-hmm. Benedict just has this broad appeal. But I I think what it is is like other things that we've mentioned before with like kind of our generally speaking our generation. Um, looks first and foremost for authenticity and Benedict presented an authentic, he was an, he himself was an authentic presentation of Catholicism and, and and more so than that. Um, he showed me, and I think many either Catholic young Catholics or aspiring young Catholics as we were at the time, he showed me a presentation of Catholicism that was both thoroughly biblical 
and very patristic. I was surprised coming to like listening, even listening to like, you know, the papal audiences, you know, um, the, the Regensburg address. Uh, and then ev- eventually when I read his book, God's word, um, I was struck by the fact that like Catholicism is smart. And I think mm-hmm. Benedict was sort of one of those, those first voices where, um, you, you read him and you're like, Oh, that dude, that's Justin Martyr. Or like, oh, he's quoting Arianias, or he's echoing Arianias. Uh, oh, that's St. Augustine through and through, what he just said there. And you're starting mm-hmm. to see that, like, wait a second. Like, Catholicism f- can be presented in this very patristic way because my view of Catholicism was very much colored by the Reformation, right? I read Reformation thinkers. And so the kind of Catholicism that they're arguing against is the Catholicism that Vatican II took a second look at. It was a very kind of reactionary Catholicism against Protestantism, but also had moved into this very heavy kind of cold scholasticism that was extracted from the biblical text and also a little bit like, I don't want to, it's not divorced, but it was just a little bit distant from the style of the early church writers. Well, not, not just, not just that, not just that kind of scholastic style, um, but also apologetic style. You know, we had read also like Roman Catholic apologists. Yeah. Okay. Bellarmine and, and, and God, and like but, but no, even modern ones, you know, God bless oh, them. Oh, right. Yeah. You know, um, the work that Dr. Scott Hahn has done and, right, but right. there, there is a, there's a different kind of language there, um, that apologists use. Benedict didn't sound like them. No. Um, and so I, I think, uh, the way that, that Benedict approached his writing was very, very, um, appealing and intriguing. Yeah. And like you said, very, very biblical and very, very patristic. I mean, I, I, I too noticed that right away. This is a, this is a patristic kind of man that's speaking. And that's why folks didn't understand him. Yes. That's why folks, <laughs> that's why the, the, the ultra traditionalist and, you know, the ultra liberal Catholic didn't quite get Benedict. Completely or missed him. But, yeah. but what's funny is that and we're not saying we're geniuses. What we're saying is that we understood him as a brother because we too studied the fathers. Mm-hmm. And when we read Benedict, we felt like he sounds like my fathers. Yeah. Yeah. It, <laughs> That's it was, why we loved him. I'm, I'm glad you bring up the apologetic literature because when we were moving out of the church and out of the church, a lot of people were putting apolo- popular apologetic works into our hands. And to me at that time, it was. Well, and, and I mean, quite frankly, even now, like reading that kind of stuff, it has a purpose and it's great for like a lot of people. But for me and who I was and what I was seeking at that time, it was not impressive to me. It wasn't convincing to me at all. Like I didn't like even the presentation of it. It was very combative. Um, that was the thing that I, I recognized in Benedict's writing God's Word, how charitable he was to Luther. That mm-hmm. surprised me. I I was reading, I was like, he's actually like getting Luther. Like he actually does understand Luther. He's not talking past him. Whereas every apologetic work I read, he's talking past him. Same when we were Anglicans. Like Benedict understood Anglicanism as if he himself had been Anglican all his life or something. Uh, it's very strange. I literally, <laughs> I literally just re- I literally just saw on social media an ordinariate priest talking about that exact thing. He said that exact thing. He said, for, in some way... It's almost like Benedict knew Anglicanism better than we knew it. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and and I and I tell you why, 
my 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 hunch here, Steve, is that it's be, again because he knows the Father so well, mm-hmm. and Anglicanism prides themselves on being the Church of the Fathers. That's right. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So I was, yeah, I I was very impressed with the, with the style, and and I'm glad you brought up the style because it it was like I he's a friend then. And I'm now I can sit down and I can I can listen to him as a friend who disagrees with me, yeah. And and I can learn from him, right? Um, it was and, what two young arrogant kids needed. Yeah, absolutely. To, to yeah, yeah. You needed you needed a you, you needed a grandpa. I mean, really, it's like yeah. you needed you needed a wise older man to take you under his wing, who knows more than you, um, and but who doesn't shove it in your face and slowly teaches you and is patient but, with you, you know. Yeah, and not, but not just even, not just in the spiritual life, but he he was also showing us how to be good scholars, how how to how to approach a text. Yeah, um, you know, because again, he's fighting um, throughout his whole ministry. He was fighting liberal scholarship, liberal theology, uh, scholars who who approached texts uh, with a with a hermeneutic of cynicism mm-hmm. rather than a hermeneutic of humility. And the way he wrote, um, we're talking about being appealing, but how he dealt with sources mm-hmm. taught you how to be a Christian scholar um, as well. And we're indebted to to him for that. Yeah. I, I and, I, and I do want to say here, I mean, we're saying that he, he battled progressives, but he also battled traditionalists. And mm-hmm. I mean that in like the, I don't mean that as traditional Catholic, I mean as traditionalists. Let's say Lefevrists or, or or whatever. Um, he was a liberal at the council, right? So it was like he goes into the council as a liberal. As time goes on after the council, all of a sudden he becomes he, he's he's seen as this conservative, and that's not because Benedict moved, but it's because something else moved around him. Benedict really kind of stayed <laughs> pretty close to what he was. But but see but but see even the even you're I know what you what you mean by it. you're saying Benedict was a liberal as you come into the council, but again what he was was his training is in the in the fathers yeah and yeah, the, yeah and the fathers um, we 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 literally we started our channel saying that the fathers are friends to everyone and friends to no one yeah okay um, that's how I think Benedict. Uh, can be viewed as he's coming as a young theologian coming into the council mm-hmm. that he's standing on a firm foundation. He's standing on the firm foundation of Christ and the church of the early fathers and the, everybody else is moving this way or that way. Yeah. And so they're viewing him in different decades. They're viewing him from different um, exactly. moments in time and moment, different perspectives, but he's always staying yeah. put. Yeah. He's perceived as a liberal, and then later on, he's perceived as God's route as an ultra conservative. Kind of, yeah, yeah, this kind of nonsense. Yeah. But, um, but the thing is, he so he, if you wanted to put like, well, what is Benedict's, Benedict's view of the Second Vatican Council? It's like all the parties that came to that council, everybody had their view of what the council was really all about, you know. And of course, the the post conciliar journals, Communio on the one hand, you know, and and Concilium on the other, you you have that battle of progressive versus the the center, center, I don't know, I don't want to say right, but you know, like the, the center of the council. So Benedict, his view is once again, this Augustinian, Aranian kind of patristic view of the council. He, he has a patristic, a patristic grid 
interpretive grid on those conciliar documents. In fact, he was he was a, a large part in producing those documents himself. Yeah. Um, but then also, um, that's why I think the great work, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which of course he was largely, in, he, I mean, wildly influential in in pr- helping to produce it. Um, that is a, that reads as a very patristic catechism. It really does, you know? So it's like, he also is the one who is summing up for us, um, with many, you know, there's a lot of people that have their hand in the catechism, but, but again, it's sort of, he had that influential role in sort of summing up what we really needed from Vatican II, what what the church really needed to understand. Because we've talked about this before. We see the problem with Vatican II is that Nobody's out there reading all of these documents. Right. Exactly. Right? There, it's it's it, there's a lot of them. And it's thick. I think you showed the book to our, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> the full of the the um, I don't know, thousands of pages, whatever it is. Um, but the catechism is is beautiful, one volume, concise, of everything that Vatican II and Catholic theology up to that point was trying to convey, and it does mm-hmm. so in a great simple way. And that's that is very much Benedict's um, imprint on it. It's a Catholicism. It's a Catholicism that was taking the best of what happened in the post-patristic age and putting it directly into dialogue with everything great that happened in the patristic age. It's like Mm -hmm. bringing those two worlds together because, again, like I said, Catholic theology had moved in a direction that was very, uh, very rational um, and based in, in the biblical witness, but not so much in direct dialogue with it. You know, it was it had become very almost esoteric. So it was there was something about the the church. Everybody sensed it. You know, like we we ourselves like now after we've seen sort of the silly season of the church happen, and we're we're in like the fallout of the fallout of that. We look back and we're kind of scratching our heads, like, man, what was that council really about? What what was the heart of it, right? But everybody, we didn't live back then. You know, like we're young. So, but if you were in their shoes, there was some kind of a feeling amongst everybody at the time that the church needed to get together. They just went through two two world wars. You know, mm-hmm. don't forget that it wasn't a, a long time ago that Protestants and Catholics were fighting each other, you know, in Europe. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're kind of coming out of this era and now you had this new thing happening, you know, this this modernism happening. So there's just this general sense that like the church needs to come together to talk and figure out what's going on here, you know, and put yeah. the church squarely in dialogue with its past and to reckon with it. Um so I, I think that's that's kind of Benedict's um, importance in a way, right? Is that he becomes sort of like that post-conciliar anchor, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just like Pope John Paul II, too. I mean, it's like Pope John Paul II and Benedict. Yeah, they're like and, these anchors and, of the council. Yeah, and a great example of that, uh, I like that I like that symbolism there, that he is this this anchor. Um, it's his it's his book, Introduction to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um I read that book maybe a couple of years before I came back to the church. Um, but even the, even the title, right? This is a, this is a, <laughs> this is a Roman Catholic that one of the top theologians of the 20th century. And the title of his book isn't an introduction to Catholicism. Mm-hmm. It's an introduction to Christianity. Yeah. Okay. Almost like C.S. Lewis, mere Christianity. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what Benedict does in this book is, is basically just comment on the creed. So again, there's Benedict, the world's swaying back and forth. There's Benedict saying, let's refocus ourselves where we started, which is the rule of faith. Basically, that's shorthand for the faith of the fathers fathers. that they received from the apostles. 
Okay. Um, and we'll certainly be talking that, about that in our channel in the second and third centuries as, the, as that rule of faith starts to guide interpretation of Scripture. Mm-hmm. So Benedict says to the church in Introduction to Christianity, let's get back to the rule of faith. Mm-hmm. Let's start there. Yeah. And then he presents this beautifully reasoned exposition of the faith. What, what's great about him, too, though, is that he doesn't, he doesn't get trapped there, though. Like, we as Anglicans, we got trapped there for a while, where it's like, just stay with yeah. the fathers, right? Like, like whatever the, right. when it went, the undivided church kind of thing, you know? When, and then as you keep studying, you're like, there was no under, there was never a time where there was an undivided church, you know? No, it's, 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 a, it's an anchoring, it's a drawing back. Yeah. It's not yeah. staying. Yeah. It's not a staying. Yeah, yeah. No, and that's, Benedict, because as much as Benedict is a patristic man, he's also the one who said the, the, the church continued after the patristic right. age. Like, yeah. So he's also, in that sense, he's very much influenced by John Henry Newman, mm-hmm. a former Anglican. <laughs> you know? yeah. So, yeah. so he very much picks up on Newman's uh, development of doctrine. Um, yeah. So as much as he is this patristic you know, kind of thinking man, he's also, he's also somebody who cherishes uh, the church's story as it moves into the Middle Ages. It, so it was really just a matter of, of taking the best of, uh, of the heart of the patristic age um, rejecting Protestantism, right? But not in that reactionary way, but in the kind of Logos Spermaticos kind of way, where it's like, well, you guys do have some truth there, right? Here's what you're missing. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's that that kind of approach. Yeah, yeah. No, there's this there's this selection. I I was going back as I was thinking about um, you know um, Benedict this week and everything. And I went mm-hmm. back to some underlines that I had made in the Introduction to Christianity book, and I think mm. it's I want to read it because it's 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 quite funny. You mentioned a couple times um, Benedict being a man of the fathers, obviously, but you mentioned the name Saint Irenaeus mm-hmm. um, a couple times too. There, I, just today, there's a little irony here, but so I want to read this uh, selection from Introduction to Christianity, and you're going to see how Benedict addresses modern issues, modern theological problems, using the voices of the fathers, um, uh, right here. But the problem that he's addressing in this selection is um, kind of liberal scholarship, the, the, the kind of scholarship that we saw in the 20th century that wanted to find out the historical Jesus. Who is the person of Jesus really? You know, not the, not the Christianized version of him, but who was the person? And so they kind of extrapolate um, from the Gospels what they want of Jesus, and they get caught up in their theories about, about who he was. Right. Um, and they kind of want to do that to to center Jesus in kind of this history of religions narrative, right? That, that the Jesus story really was developed over time um, using the myths of the ancient world, and, and it's common to a lot of religions. Mm-hmm. So what started to happen is that liberal scholarship started to rob Christ of his uniqueness and his profundity, and Benedict's here to restore it. So here, here's, here's the selection that I, that I underlined. <clears throat> Almost all religions center around the problem of expiation. They arise out of man's knowledge of his guilt before God and signify the attempt to remove this feeling of guilt, to surmount the guilt through conciliatory actions offered up to God. The expiatory activity by which men hope to conciliate the divinity and to put him in a gracious mood stands at the heart of the history of religion. In the New Testament, the situation is almost completely reversed. It is not man who goes to God with a um, compensatory gift, but God who comes to man in order to give to him. 
This is truly something new, something unheard of, the starting point of Christian existence and the center of the New Testament theology of the cross. God does not wait until the guilty come to be reconciled. He goes to meet them and reconciles them. It stands there, not as a work of expiation that mankind offers to a wrathful God, but as the expression of that foolish love of God's that gives itself away to the point of humiliation in order thus to save man. The essential form of Christian worship is therefore rightly called Eucharistia, thanksgiving. Letting God act on us, that is Christian sacrifice. So, I say here he's calling on the fathers, ironically behind me, is my patristic breviary, which gives you a different reading um, every day. Uh, And so today is January 4th. This is what St. Irenaeus said in the late 2nd century. People who are in the light do not themselves provide the light but are illuminated and made bright by it. They do not contribute anything to it, but by being illuminated, they receive the benefit of the light. Similarly, to serve God does not mean giving him any gift, nor has God any need of our service. On the contrary, it is he who gives to those who serve him life, immortality, and eternal glory. He rewards those who serve him without deriving any benefit himself from their service. He is rich. He is perfect. He has no needs. So the center of Christian sacrifice is letting God work upon us. Mm-hmm. We have nothing to give him. There is no sacrifice that we can give him. Yeah. Straight from Arianias, straight to Pope Benedict in his introduction to Christianity to fight a modern problem. Yeah, yeah. It, the the progressive idea or the progressive story is the man who became God. You know, the historical critical story is the man who became God. But for Benedict and for the church, is it's the story of the the God who became man. Yeah. And so it, it's it's the exact opposite. And the thing that's that, that's great about Benedict is that even here, he doesn't repudiate. Like, he doesn't repudiate the historical critical method. He sees in it yet another tool in the church's arsenal for elucidating the text to take us to the God-man. Um, and that was something that he was, he was very concerned about, was that historical critical method was being used in such a way as to completely div- like divorce Christ from, from the Logos, like to, to divorce Christ from Christianity. Um, and to just treat this as kind of a, a, a like any other text, in other words. Um, mm-hmm. See, that that's the thing is that the Benedict, you know, his idea was that, you know, look at how the fathers handled alternate inter- uh, methods of interpreting the text. It was always to to get closer to the God Man, like in order to yeah. grow in holiness and to elucidate understanding, um, whereas you know, what was the church using the historical critical method for? Some people were like, this is, this is not to be used like at all. Right. And then other people were like, <laughs> you know, throwing up, you know, the faith <laughs> for it. Um, so Benedict was just saying, look, it's just one more tool in the arsenal of the church actually. And, and he wielded it. When, when wielded well. properly. Yeah. Yeah. He wielded yeah. it well. Um, yeah. so again, basically in summary, it, it's exactly what you were saying is that he taught us to be, Christian scholars yeah. for that yeah. reason, you know, here's how to properly use historical critical method. Um, 
Yeah, so it it was it was that, um, but it was also in my journey uh, personally. Um, I you know at the time when I was engaging with orthodoxy a lot, um, a lot of it because I was introduced to it through my uh, fiance and eventually wife, um, who's Greek. I I was torn for a long time between orthodoxy and Catholicism and Anglicanism, not really knowing you know where I belonged to stuff. So. Um, it was always interesting to me that I was listening to a, a lecture one time uh, by Father Patrick Henry Reardon, who's actually a really like a huge luminary for orthodoxy um, mm-hmm. today. He's just, he's just a priest like in Chicago, you know, yeah. but, but he's the author of like Christ in the Psalms um, among a billion other you know, the, things. The Jesus, what's the, what's the, the, the Jesus we missed? The Jesus we missed. Um, yeah. yeah, it's one of them. Um, Christ and his saints. So he has, he, he has a lot of, I mean, just seminal works. Um, but he even said once, uh, they, he was asked about, um, the papacy, you know, and typically, you know, the Orthodox are always like, you know, you know, stepping away from that topic and like, you know, um, the Pope is no more authoritative than any other metropolitan in his area. That was not Pat Reardon's answer. Pat Reardon's answer was no, we need a strong papacy. We've always needed a strong papacy in Rome, you know? Yeah. And then of course yeah. his, his Orthodox point of view is like, we just need an Orthodox one. Right. Um, but he made a point to say, we were very happy with Pope Benedict and what was going on in Rome under Pope Benedict. Mm. For once we felt that there was a Pope we could <coughs> really make progress with and get somewhere. Um, and then he went on to make comments about where we're at now, but I'll leave that be. But yeah, he 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 was um, a pope for the Orthodox as well, a pope for the Eastern churches, Eastern Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox. It was he was just this figure that was so um, he understood the Eastern tradition so well. So he understands the Protestant tradition very well. He understands secularism very well. He understands the and appreciates the Eastern tradition very well. Um, so is, he really was exactly what you would want a Pope to be, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And of course he understood his own tradition really well. Um, we were, we were, so we were not just, uh, obviously, uh, deeply affected by, um, what he wrote, his theology, his approach to his scholarship, um, his words of wisdom, um, but also something like Sumorum Pontificum, uh, where he, allows the Tridentine right to exist. And if it will flourish, then flourish. Um, you know, you, you priests, you don't need permission from anybody to celebrate the right that has, um, always been there. That has and been handed I think, on. yeah. And I think, um, the words, uh, of that document will echo into eternity. Um, you know, he quote, what earlier generations held as sacred, Remains sacred and great for us too, and it cannot be all of a sudden entirely forbidden or even considered harmful. End quote. Um, that's again, such an that's inarguable so principle. T- it's such it's an so inarguable, principle. and it's so simple and typically Benedict. Mm-hmm. Uh, simple and profound at the same exact time. Mm-hmm. Um, why is this important, or why was this important to us? It, because he had his he had his whole ear next to our hearts. Yeah. He was listening to us, and it was it was the Latin Mass that ended up 
pushing me back into the Roman church. If he hadn't allowed greater freedom to priests to celebrate that mass, would this parish of St. Mary's been celebrating it when I went to visit on a random mm-hmm. Sunday? Mm-hmm. Would it have been there for me? Would have I encountered Christ the way I encountered Christ that day without it? Mm-hmm. Um, so generally, yes, um, Sumorum Pontificum was this great document, but also personally uh, on my own spiritual journey. Yeah. It was yeah. a great document. And, and and look at what he does there, too, in that one sentence. He puts it back on the people, on the detractors of, like, tradition. You know, he's saying, like, okay, so wait. Not that he's saying this, but here, here's what here's what I would, I would pull from that principle. You know, it, it, it's that whenever somebody raises a flag about something about the Novus Ordo, all right, um immediately there's this reaction where it's like, you can't critique it. You, you can't. Yeah, that's from a council or something, you know. That, um, it's like, well, but you do to the old right. In fact, right. the Novus Ordo rests on the idea that something wasn't quite right <laughs> with mm-hmm. what came before. Right. So, so that's what Benedict, I think, finally put his finger on and said, there's a problem there. That if people, just as much as, say, a Pope Francis sees the Tridentine Rite as a threat to the Novus Ordo, on the flip side, there is some kind of an assumption there, or, or at least people have taken the Novus Ordo as a way of saying there was something wrong with the old Rite. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem, too. Yep. So, Benedict was very much let both thrive, breathe, and naturally grow together. Well, right? and he says it is he says in his last will and testament, uh, Benedict does, yeah. that his whole purpose in, in in doing it was to allow an inner peace to come about in the church. Yep. yep. And that inner peace might come decades from now. But you have to have the two next to each other to well, grow you know, together. That peace was there. That's what's that's yeah. what's crazy about it is that and and that's what uh, actually Dr. Peter Kwasniewski wrote a book called The Peace of Benedict, and I I haven't read it, but I I, I just loved that title when I heard it. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's exactly right. There was a liturgical peace under Benedict yeah. because yeah. both were allowed to thrive. The controversy started after his pontif. The real controversy started after his pontificate. Um, so it was it was under Benedict where both were able to breathe um, that you even started to see way better Novus Ordos like where like like so, I, right. I to this day I still attend primarily the Novus the, the Novus Ordo but it's a Novus Ordo that has been heavily influenced by the thriving of the extraordinary form so it's mm-hmm. like there it is that's exactly what he was and a thousand years from now what what would that have looked like as as you know slowly the church continues to reflect on that and to and to have both speak to each other. You know, the Roman Rite would have developed into something even even more beautiful, more grand, right? And 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 that was Benedict's thing: is that like the people of the Reform of the Reform? I was just reading an article um, where they said the people who were all for the Reform of the Reform um, were really disappointed by Benedict because Benedict didn't come in with the heavy hammer and start, you know, saying, "All right, here's the new missal. We're we're putting the offertory back in. We're doing this. We're doing you know, all these different things." He just allowed both rites to thrive together, and he trusts the Holy Spirit. To, to, which to is so, grow. which is so Benedict. The trust in the Holy Spirit, the trust in the process. Let the Spirit work in ways He wants to work through. If it takes 
one year if it takes a thousand years. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter to him. Uh, and, and in that, Benedict was quite prophetic. Yes. Um, and, and we and don't know what, the end of that story. We're, we're in the middle of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's yeah. why St. Morum Pontificum came as a, a cold drink of water to two men who sludged through a, the desert of Anglican liturgical wars for so many years. Like, mm-hmm. you, you came to it and you said, ah. Because the Novus Ordo, to me, was, was poison in my mouth, actually. I'm going to be honest with you. Like, I mean, it, it was poison in my mouth oh, as, yeah. as, as, as an Anglican who was tired of liturgical revisionism. So then when, you, when I would go to a Novus Ordo Mass, knowing the history of it, I was like, man, this is just like, I don't think this now. I'm just saying that, like, but in my mind at the time, I was like, well, what's the difference between that and Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer? Yeah, no, you're, no you're, 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 it's, it, it goes to your point is that we, we found a parish that had a Tridentine mm-hmm. rite. But to this day, I have always attended more Novus Ordo. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I much rarer attended the Tridentine um, when we were still celebrating it. Um, I was always going to Novus Ordo. But it was, the, it was, it was that the, the Tridentine was there yes. to ground our faith that allowed us to say, okay, yes, the Novus Ordo. Mm-hmm. Okay, now I understand it. Okay, because I know that its predecessor is right next to it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And, and, and the reverence of the two services, there's, there's a mutuality there. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, it redeemed the, no, the, the Trinitine redeemed the Novus Ordo for me is what yeah. I was what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in very much the same way that the, say the 15, the 1549 book of common prayer, you know, or the night, let's say the 1928 book of common prayer in Anglicanism, was like it had a redeeming quality to it versus the nineteen seventy nine you know episcopal you know book book of yeah. common prayer because it was like yeah. this over here is an experiment the nineteen seventy nine this over here was you know five hundred years old right right so there was something about it that like you're like okay as long as the as the nineteen twenty eight prayer book is allowed to thrive and continue you know. Um, yeah. I can appreciate elements of the, of the 79, you know, but, but when we're talking about the Catholic liturgy, we're talking about something that goes back like way earlier. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. So you just feel firmly rooted in tradition when it's able to thrive and you feel there's something destabilizing, you know, when, when the two are starting to like be at war with one another, you know, and Benedict was, was really great at, at calming that storm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but, um, the, oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, uh, the other great um, document that come from his papacy is, of course, uh, Anglicanorum uh, Chiribus. Yeah. So the... the, the um, Another the liturgical of, masterpiece comes from that one. <laughs> yeah, another liturgical masterpiece. Um, the founding of the Anglican ordinariates uh, for the church. Um, he, he did it, man. He, he, he was... Li- Pope Benedict was listening to ecumenical dialogue for 60 years... And there, nobody was making any headway. <laughs> Nothing yeah. was... Because we all agree that, that the end game of ecumenism should be one church. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, so how can we have one church enter in the ordinariate for Anglicans? And those who put that liturgy together, Benedict approving that liturgy, it's a beautiful expression. And in many ways many ways closer to a Tridentine expression of the faith than the Novus Ordo. It's a yeah. blend of both. And in fact, I would argue that the ordinary liturgy is exactly what 
Benedict has in mind for the future of the Roman Rite. 100%. Because the, the Ordinariate Liturgy is a Tridentine and a Novus Ordo, kind of mixed together. With some Cranberry. Be- yeah, with some Cranberry. Yeah, with, cran- with Cranberry mm-hmm. thrown in for fun. It's this beautiful <laughs> blend of... It's, those, it's that beautiful blend of, of those three elements. Um, and what you get is the right worship of God. The, the Western liturgical tradition is what yeah. you get, actually. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, um, so it's kind of like, it's almost like, I, I tend to see it almost as like, almost a pet project for Benedict to, to show the world, this is what's possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll say, I'll say straight up, like the ordinariate was the, what was the final thing that made me like, just want to become Roman Catholic because it was, I was, I was watching Catholics do Anglicanism better than Anglicans. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like doing Anglican worship and piety better than the Anglicans were doing it. And so it just became like, what is the purpose of Anglicanism anymore? Mm -hmm. If, if a form of it the the highest possible form of it can be in perfect communion but it's, with the it's Holy not, But it's not just a swallowing. It's not just a swallowing up. It, Benedict saw the merits of Anglicanism. Yeah, yeah. Of, of the Anglican course. tradition, he saw the merits of um, a lot of their liturgical practices, their their liturgical praying, and he wanted it to be adopted into the fold as part of the universal tradition, and for that. To then be a light to the rest of the tradition. Yeah, yeah, and look, and I'm so not. It's, I'm this, not... It's, a humble, it's a humble ecumenism, but an ecumenism that is thoroughly orthodox. Yeah, it's real ecumenism. Exactly, exactly. Um, and I'm not. I'm not slighting Anglicanism in that in that way. I mean, even even Archbishop Michael Ramsey's stated goal for Anglicanism was that it would disappear, like that that it would be no longer useful for it to exist. <laughs> so it's like mm-hmm. he because he's saying like the goal of of anglicanism is to bring the church together again like into one church so anglicanism needs needs to eventually die in that sense yeah. um that sense, yeah. and 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 that's what benedict shows us he shows us exactly what what michael ramsey was groping for you know dimly Benedict shows forth in, in, in broad daylight. Yeah. That, like, it's well, it's the it seed is. that dies. It's the seed that dies. Yeah. Yeah. In the ordinary Anglicanism, Anglicanism dies, but rises again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, in this, in this As beautiful expression. English Catholicism. English Catholicism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, okay. So apart from the, the works uh, in, in uh, or his work and what we've talked about so far, there is one more thing I just, I, I, I jotted down that, um, that was really refreshing uh, at the time, um, especially once again being in the Protestant world where it felt like, and we're talking mainstream Protestant denominations, right? Like it just felt like nobody was speaking um, to our actual in enemies in the West. Like instead, mm. it was it was sort of like very mushy and 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 this very just way too soft of of an approach to our actual enemies. And, and Benedict was able to face Christianity's enemies with charity, wisdom, but also clarity. He didn't shy away from it. And those enemies are secularism and Islam point blank. 
and it, it's it's a he called secularism you know the the dictatorship of relativism mm-hmm. um now what's funny about that is that both of these islam and secularism on opposite ends of the spectrum of course divorced faith from reason and that's it's that's it. that's his whole Regensburg address right there that's what mm-hmm. that whole thing was about where he got in trouble for critiquing islam by saying once again that islam's biggest fault is that it divorces faith from the logos so that so that once you do that it just becomes about the will of god yeah, God because is, Allah, Allah is so transcendent. He's so transcendent right? that he even transcends reason. Mm-hmm. And so it's not a reasonable faith. It's not a mm-hmm. logos faith. It's not an intellectual faith, mm-hmm. as in the, the act of to intellect, right? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like being intellectual. Um, but on the other end of that, secularism, right? It does the same thing, only it does it in the, in, in, not in the will of, not, not in the direction of God's will but in the direction of my will, mm-hmm. right? Like, so the human will, um, what I want is what is. And so yeah, that's You see that in modern, in the modern political discussions, social discussions, it's what I think I am. It's what I want to do. It's my, it's me, 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 right. My will over biology even sometimes. Yeah. There's no, there's no, there's no natural law anymore because mm-hmm. ultimately the universe does not have a mind behind it. Yeah. Um, which is funny because it, sometimes secularism will mix itself with scientism and, and the whole pre, the, the whole fundamental, like the whole uh, foundation of science is that nature is intelligible, <laughs> is that yeah. nature yeah. is reasonable. Yeah. I can put math to it. <laughs> you know? like, so it's funny that you have this stra- these two strange bedfellows coming at, coming at once. But ultimately, so, so, so the, yeah, yeah but, but, but ultimately um, this secularism project and this is this is where benedict goes a step further benedict roots it in the reformation i mean he sees it as secularism is is the the grandchild of luther um and 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 this is why benedict the unintended unintended oh yeah 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 of course yeah luther would have never yeah (laughs) but but the unintended grandchild of luther is the secularism that we're all dealing with because um, and he wrote this, you know, um, this forward to a book called Faith in Luther uh, by Paul Hacker, and that book, you know, Benedict says like basically this book gets it right because the whole argument is that Luther is the beginning of anthropocentric religion in the West, mm-hmm. um, where where um, we it leads us to a divorce between God's sovereignty and His will. And, and reason. And this is why even in the, in the further outcroppings of Protestantism, like Calvinism, you get this whole thing of like, let's take, for instance, like double predestination, right? And you're like, well, that doesn't quite jive with our idea of justice, though. And like, too bad. That's God's will. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, yeah. Um, yeah. It's a, that's a caricature, but it at least gets the point right. across that like you come across right. these things sometimes in Calvinism or, Pro- or, or low forms of Protestantism where you're like, well, that doesn't make sense, though. That's not reasonable. And they'll say, well, mm-hmm. The, the clay doesn't talk back to the potter, do they? Like, it's God's right. will. And what's funny is that that's how Islam talks. Mm-hmm. That's Islam's way. And so it, it's funny that you sort of have this um, this move of, like, that's why, you know, Protestantism and, and Islam are both religions of the book, you know, <laughs> because they rely on just, like, that that will. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then, of course, later, I mean, secularism is basically just 
Protestantism with the Bible thrown away, you know. Um, so, but but but, so but it, it 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 one one last thing though. What that yeah. does though is it it trickles down into society, and so now what you see is even in our politics, we don't have reasonable discussions. We don't have re- uh, uh, debates where we're both appealing to natural law or reason. Right. What we're doing is all about the imposition of the will, whether it's in Islam, the will of God. Or it's in and, secularism. And, and violently. Yes. Right. Or whether it's in secularism where it's my my will be done. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why Benedict, if I could sum up his entire papacy and his entire ministry, it would be faith and reason seeking charity, seeking love. Love is the ultimate yeah. end goal like here. You know? Yeah. Um, the ultimate goal of you know, theology, liturgy, philosophy is love. It's very Augustinian. <laughs> you know, um, mm-hmm. and is it any wonder then why re- re- reportedly his last words when he was dying was Jesus, ich liebe dich, Jesus, I love you. Yeah, it's the end of all theology. It's the greatest theological statement you could you could make. Um, he died a true theologian in that way. Yeah, <laughs> saying I love you. Um, yeah, that was that that was beautiful. Um, beautiful to hear. Yeah. So many people, uh, especially on the traditional side, will feel, um, in hindsight, will feel kind of abandoned by the fact that Pope Benedict had abdicated. Um, yeah, it's and, kind of it's kind of the elephant in the room, right? Yeah, it's it's a reoccurring criticism uh, that is brought up about him, um, and and you know, if if I'm being honest, I obviously it bothers me. I, yeah, it bothers me. I'm not. I'm not totally happy that we had this situation for you know this many years of like like two popes two popes in rome almost uh you know so it 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 was a confusing thing but um but i think there's something much deeper to it you know than just Mm -hmm. um what what it was spun as as like oh well he he you know abandoned us or um yeah because people um people keep referencing when he came into the papacy he had asked us to pray that he wouldn't flee from the wolves and and the abdication is being perceived, or it looks like he fled from the wolves. Mm-hmm. Um, so I yeah I, I I get that I under I understand that. Um, but you know what it, what is what might be his perspective on it? You know you're um, to me it's almost like he he did all this. We 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 just spent you know. 45 minutes talking about all these accomplishments of his and mm-hmm. his fight for orthodoxy. And it's almost like, what more do you want from yeah. him? Yeah. Yeah. And um, even in his he, mind, he has, in Sumorum Pontificum, he, he invoked the full authority of his office. Even, I mean, if you're reading that, yeah. like, so it's a him, it's like, this is all set in stone now, but he, he wrote and said everything I think he needed and wanted to say. Yeah. And, it's almost like it, it came it came time now for him to leave it to the Holy Spirit and for him to once again occupy himself with the salvation of his own soul and he you know we know that um, Benedict wasn't an athletic man his body was breaking down his mind wasn't but his body was mm-hmm. and I'm just trying to put myself in his shoes and to him, he's he's thinking, 
the weight of the office is bearing down on me to the point that it's harming my soul. Mm -hmm. And if this whole thing is about the salvation of souls, it's time for me to look after mine. In right? the twilight of his life, yeah. In the twilight of his life. Um, and so I, I have been viewing, and, and I, I know you've said this before too, his move into the, um, the monastery was a move into just that, monasticism. Yes. Um, we know that in terms of white martyrdom. Yeah. So there, to us, there was a purgation and a martyrdom that Benedict put himself through in reparation for what he would call his own shortcomings. Yeah. Um, and perhaps one of those shortcomings, you don't, we don't know, is his abdication. Maybe he felt it was a shortcoming, but he just couldn't bear it. And so he's going to put himself through this martyrdom. Well, the way that he talks about it in his will and testament um, is actually as a taking on of a much, of a much more strenuous duty. And that was to really pray always without ceasing for everything and everyone <laughs> and for the church. So he chose exactly that. Like it wasn't like, Oh, I'm retiring and I'm going to go sit in a villa. You we know, know look, we know that he was choosing he was choosing a life of penance at least w w with what was remaining of his life and and so in in a, in, a, in a very catholic view he was choosing a higher good than even the papal office and that is martyrdom it's white martyrdom yeah it, it reminds very, us it reminds us of saint ignatius of antioch doesn't it yeah it's a very ignatian ignatian move because there's so many people who even in Ignatius's time, would have construed him going to Rome instead of getting out of his martyrdom in Rome, but embracing it and saying, let me become the bread of God. Because I know what is best for me. This is a direct quote from Ignatius. I know what is best for me, right? Let me become the bread of God. Do not hinder me, for I am only now becoming a Christian, is what Ignatius mm -hmm. says. Now, imagine being part of his flock back in Antioch. They'd be like, he's abandoning us. He's leaving right. us. You know, right. but, but, but Cause they, Ignatius, cause they, cause they write to him telling him we can get you out of this. Yeah. You yeah. know, but Ignatius knew that embracing this martyrdom was actually going to do far more, not only for his own soul, but even for the good of the flock. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and it did, you know, mm -hmm. there's a reason why there's no, in the long dust. run, I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure in the short run it didn't. Right. But right. in the, in the long run it does. But there's a reason why all of Ignatius's detractors in Antioch didn't succeed, you know, <laughs> that's why they didn't exist afterwards. Um, yeah. And, 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 you know, in, in a, in a way, a lot of the controversies that have been, I mean, just raging in, in the church, in a way you can see all Catholics kind of coming together to venerate the memory of this man right now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with, with that in mind, I, I mean, our whole channel is about the early church fathers. You know, um, we, we, we emphasize the fathers, the patristic age. And we often, you know, revere the fathers as these, these almost, they're almost untouchable in a way, you know, they, they, they almost become like an icon, you know, and only that. But these were men, these were people, you know. Um, and we forget that just like, uh, this is actually also uh, Archbishop Michael Ramsey, right? The, the Archbishop of, Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury, 
I don't know. He's come up twice now. Um, but he, he had a point once that he made that you and I have always resonated with where he said it's very possible that we right now are the early church. You know, we have to get that into our heads that, that a thousand years from now, people are going to look back and say, oh, what was going on in the early church? We are the early church then, yeah, you know. Could very well um, be. And because that's the case, Pope Benedict, he, he is a church father. He was, he, we, are, we are currently burying a living church father because mm-hmm. if you study church history, you know, like say, okay, Dan, second century, major players, you know, and you can just rattle them right off. You know, it's like Ignatius, you know, it's like Aranias, Justin Martin. Justin. Yep. <laughs> yeah. you, know, um, you know the names of each century. Yep. Exactly. Each century kind of has its names. The 20th and 21st century for, for Roman Catholicism is going to be, you know, Pope Benedict. Um, Pope it's Pope John Paul II, right? But it's it's also it's Pope Benedict. He's going to be one of those names, and so yeah. uh, it's just as somebody as as people who love the Patristic Fathers so much and 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 you know love these pivotal figures, we're burying one right now. You know. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that I guess to me is why it hit us. It, why why I'm sad personally. It, it's you know a, a church father has died in our midst, and it's like. You know, it's like when our our grandpa died, okay? Yeah. This this patriarch of the family, and you know, once once he dies, how are we going to be a family? Like, how's it going to work without him? And 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 we in real life, we had to figure out how we were going to be family, right? Um, when the patriarch wasn't there anymore, when the church father was, and 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 that's kind of how it feels with Benedict right now. Yeah. How are we going to get along as a family without him? Because, because um, that's what he was to us. And I wouldn't say that about other popes. I wouldn't even say that about Saint John Paul II, mm-hmm. um, for how great he was and how meaningful he was even to our family as a Polish pope. <clears throat> um, but it was you knew that Ratzinger was there by his side. <laughs> you knew that even he was then, there. <laughs> and you knew that Ratzinger has been there since the councils. Um, kind of this steady guiding hand through it all. And so the feeling that I have is even if in the last few years of his life, he was only symbolic. It's like we now have, we do have to figure out uh, in our generation, how we're going to get along as a family. Yeah. Um, and there's probably going to be some ups and downs. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just feel, I feel the same way. I feel like, um, I feel a general sense of instability and, uh, and I, yeah. And I feel like maybe other people, maybe people who are older than us who, you know, lived through a lot of the craziness of the post-conciliar, um, implementation and stuff may have a different view, but there was something about the late, ministry of Pope John Paul II and moving into the papacy of uh, Pope Benedict that Catholicism just felt, felt very stable. Um, so yeah, yeah. To not, to not have that kind of anchoring patristic figure among us. Um, yeah. We have to figure out sort of how is the family going to celebrate Christmas and whose house are we going to and all that. <laughs> exactly. But so obviously, so obviously, um, we owe a debt to um, Joseph Ratzinger, to Pope Benedict. Mm-hmm. Um, we pray for his soul, but as the secretary said, also pray to him, yeah. um, asking for his intercession. But I think 
I think we can end uh, end there. I just want to end with a prayer, um, actually from the Ordinariate prayer book. Oh, great! Uh, in honor of Pope Benedict, and we'll just uh, we'll pray for his uh, for his soul, in, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. O God, who of thy ineffable providence didst vouchsafe to number thy servant, Pope Benedict, in the company of thy high priests, grant, we beseech thee, that as he did fulfill on earth the office of thine only begotten Son, he may be numbered in the everlasting fellowship of thy holy pontiffs. Through the same Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, ever one God, world without end. Amen. Amen. The Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.